Welcome to another edition of the Reptile Living Room. I'm your host, John F. Taylor. And uh, tonight we actually sit down with Justin Julander from Australian Addictions and talk to him about how he got started and uh, pretty much what started him with the uh, Australian python species and some of the other uh, Australian reptile species that he's been working with. And speaking of Australian species, I'm sure you all know by now, we are brought to you once again by Marshall McGinnis of Golden Gate Geckos for the finest in the fur species, which is also Australian. She has the leopard geckos, African fat tails, and also the colionic species. So definitely give her a tumble. Once again, that's Marsha McGinnis at GoldenGateGeckos.com. And without further ado, here's Justin Julander from Australian Addictions. Tonight we're on the line with Justin Julander from Australian Addiction. And uh, Justin saw a couple of pythons and other animals that you've had at the shows. How did you originally get into uh, reptiles at all? Oh, I, it's probably uh, from, you know, second grade dinosaur books. Looking at the dinosaur books, they always had the reptiles in the back. Right. So, um, you, you know, you get done reading a dinosaur book and you see living dinosaurs, you know, in the back of the book. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know, it just kind of sparked a, an interest and a fascination, and uh, it's been going strong ever since. Okay. Now, what was the first reptile species you ever kept? Well, I... I'm, I'm pretty sure it was a rosy boa, but it may have been a gopher snake. Uh, my cousin gave me a rosy boa, and that was at least the first or the second one I kept. And, okay. Um, it was a, you know, he caught it just hiking up by his house, and so it was it was wild caught. It didn't last very long. Rosy boas, or sorry, rubber boas aren't the, they say rosy boa or rubber boa. Yeah. <laughs> it, was the, it was a rubber boa, so. Okay. Um, rubber boas aren't the uh, easiest to keep, and, and right. so it didn't last long under my novice care um okay. but the the gopher snake i think was probably second and and it lasted a long time that thing was bulletproof a great pet and uh had it for a long time right so that was kind of the one that got me really excited about keeping things seeing that i could keep something you know for several years uh kind of a nice thing right so what got you start started to uh work with the australian species well, i i always you know what you know after getting into reptiles and seeing reptiles in the books, I always was just fascinated by the Australian reptiles. They always seemed to have the coolest things. I'd probably have to say the uh, frill lizards were kind of what sparked my interest in Australian stuff. And after that, you know, get, looking into more uh, Australian reptiles, I discovered the carpet pythons. And I just uh, the the carpet pythons are probably my primary interest in the Australian reptiles. I really like the the carpet pythons or any any python for that matter from australia are right. pretty dang cool so you know through the websites and things like that and seeing different uh different carpet pythons it just my fascination with those grew and was able to pick up some of those and start working with them and i've been hooked ever since okay now as far as carpet pythons go uh, how many because there are subspecies of carpet pythons and yeah. how many are you currently work with right now? Well, um, the the subspecies thing is somewhat open for debate. Th- th- this is true. This is true. Yeah, kind of shows that there's there's kind of a weak. Uh, there's not really much support for for subspecies. Although um, you know, it's it's obvious that there's a difference between say a diamond python and a and a Darwin carpet python. Right. So, I mean, I, I think the uh, subspecies val- have some value for herpeticulture mm-hmm. and uh, that, you know, we can kind of give a definition of what, what exactly we're talking about. And that's really what, you know, subspecies, species, that's what that does is helps us know what we're talking about. So, right. 
Um, I, I, you know, scientifically, they change, they jump and do different things and change names all the time. I mean, people still call green tree pythons chondros, even though they haven't been called chondro pythons for several years now. So, I mean, it, you know, the, the scientific literature is important, um, although it doesn't have that extreme, you know, pressure on herpticulture. So, mm -hmm. I think the subspecies in that regard are are useful. So, you know, with that in mind, I guess we. We keep the jungle carpets, uh, or the Shani, the uh, coastal carpets, or the McDowell Um We've got Darwin's carpets. We just recently got those. They're somewhat rare in the United States. Only a few people have those. Uh, um, that's the Variagata. And then we've had, uh, we've, we have a diamond python. We had a pair, but uh, lost the male. So um, oh, wow. okay. we're, we're looking to get those again. They're really neat species. Uh, and then... We're actually bringing in some Metcalfi from Europe this year, so oh, those wow. will be inland carpet pythons. Okay. And uh, so after that, uh, the only one we'll be lacking is the uh, southwestern carpets. Right. Okay. Now, uh, as far as the carpet pythons are concerned, you uh, you're currently breeding all that all of those species, correct? Well, we we or at are least a good portion of them. <laughs> Currently producing uh, jungles and coastals regularly. Okay. Um, like I said, the diamond python project wasn't too uh, successful up right. to this point. And then the Darwins, we just got as hatchlings this year, so they're a little young. But yeah, we produced the uh, we've produced jungles and coastals for several years now. I think my first jungle clutch was back in '03. Okay. I believe. So it's yeah, been almost a, a decade since we've been breeding carpet pythons. Okay. Now, as far as carpet pythons are concerned, because I know they started to do uh, do some crossbreeding. Uh huh. Uh, what's your opinion on that? Well, I mean, I think morphs in general are a big driving factor for herpes culture as it is today. Right. And I think that the reason it's is as big as it is has a lot to do with you know ball python morphs, and so mm -hmm. it's hard to fault. The morph thing. I mean, obviously morphs are very important in herpticulture, and a lot of people like them, and and it kind of gives a little more, you know, a little bit uh, an, an extra excitement value to it, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, the, you know, the ball python market is the primary example of that. Uh, ball pythons by themselves are not the most exciting species to work with, but having all those cool colors and patterns and things to mix and match and come up with something new and exciting that nobody's seen before and everybody's kind of on the edge of their seats to see that, that gives that level of excitement um, that you know it's once you produce a species or once the species has been produced reliably um, it gets to be old with some people I mean I, I'm sure there's plenty of people out there that have a species just to have a species I don't think they care if there's any morphs or right. anything like that but the, the morphs at that extra level and unfortunately with the carpet python morphs or, you know, I guess it's hard to say fortunately or unfortunately, but uh, that, that causes people to mix and match the different subspecies mm -hmm. or regional variants, whatever you want to call them. So, um, I mean, if, if the scientific literature is correct, then breeding a jungle and a coastal together to produce a, like a, a zebra jaguar isn't necessarily, um, you know, hybridizing or anything. It's just right. maybe crossing regional variants or that at worst, uh, crossing subspecies. So. Okay. Right. But, yeah, I mean, the, the, the byproducts, I guess, the normal um, the, the normal animals without the genes 
um, you know, then then you've got something that's, I guess you call it a carpet python and just sell to the, the wholesalers or something, and then somebody ends up with a carpet. They they don't know what it is. You see all these posts on the Moralia uh, pythons.com boards that, you know, right. asking what kind of carpet python do I have, and so it adds a little bit of confusion that way. And, uh, you know, if there's any speckling in it, oh, there's diamond in there, you know, that kind of thing. So right, you right. Yes, the say what they've got or what the person um, that's that's kind of the downside <laughs> and anybody who wants a, a real jungle you know after people start and mix and match and it's a lot harder to find those you know wine bread pure jungles I guess you'd call them so. right right now what are some of the early issues that you ran into as far as breeding the uh, carp pythons is there anything um, specific that kind of stuck out for you that was kind of tougher to overcome than most of the rest of the things not, not especially. I mean, I think, I don't know if we've just been lucky or if our breeding method works for carpets, but we've had really good luck uh, breeding our carpets. The only time we haven't gotten them to breed is, you know, when they're when they're sick. And I guess we, we brought in a, a collection of, of uh, a different species of python at one time, and they had a respiratory infection. And it wasn't like the you know, the mild respiratory infections that you cure with a little heat and, you know, right, you'll right. see this thing spread and, and, and this was, you know, several years ago and, and ended up get, uh, killing a bunch of our animals. So oh. um, we had to really intensively treat and care for these things. Uh, so that was probably the, I guess, the thing that impeded me most was uh, these, you know, this respiratory infection that broke out. So, okay. Um, been cleared up for several years. I haven't seen any more since, so that's a nice thing. But man, that's uh, no fun to have to deal with. It's really important. I, you know, I learned the lesson of a good quarantine and making right. sure right. quarantine anything new coming in. So, now speaking of quarantine, uh, what advice would you give to a breeder that was uh, trying to break into the carpet python industry? I guess. Yeah, um, that's that's a good question. I mean, once. Once you have a new animal in, it's good to keep them separated from the rest of your collection for at least a few months just to see if the stress of shipping, you know, usually the stress of shipping is enough to bring out any pathogens that the animals are harboring. Um, so it, it's good to keep them kind of off, off in an area that's separate from your collection. So if they are carrying anything, they won't show up. And a lot of people, you know, they, they'll want to potentially blame the person who sent it. And, you know, maybe it's Maybe they had no clue because some of these things don't really show up or manifest unless they have a stressful event. So if an animal's housed from a from a hatchling up and it picks up something in in your collection, it may not show that until there's some stressful event like a breeding season or a shipping or something like that. So, um, but you know the most of these things are pretty easily treated and a uh, simple visit to the vet and they can prescribe some. Uh, antibiotics like Batril or after they do a sensitivity test to determine which uh, antibiotics would be most appropriate for treating those uh, illnesses are pretty easy to clear up. Okay. Now, uh, would you recommend the carpet pythons for someone living in an apartment setting? Um, I, I think they, they can be uh, housed in, a, in an apartment. I know that uh, several European breeders breed some amazing carpets and most people over there generally live in apartments. Uh, right. They're kind of a moderate-sized snake. They, they don't require the, the hugest of accommodations, okay. um, you know, as, as far as some of the other python species go. Right. Um, probably the, the largest 
cage you'd need for a, for a carpet to house it appropriately would be you know, maybe six feet long, eight feet long at the most, and maybe three feet deep, a couple feet high. Yeah, I think, I think they're reasonable species to be kept. Um, alternatively, we work with a lot of the Anchoresia pythons as well, the, the children's python group. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, yeah, those are really nice pythons as well for people without a lot of space. Um, right. Keep those in fairly uh, small size cages compared to any other python. Right, right. Now, how many uh, species altogether do you work with uh, at Australian Addiction? Um, that's a good question. <laughs> I, <have to laughs> kinda, I, I should have thought about that in, in advance, but um, we keep these, all four of the Anchoresia species, uh, okay. three different carpet python subspecies, olive pythons, uh, we keep ball pythons and angolan pythons, and walma pythons. Oh, wow, okay. And I think that's it for, for now. Like I said, we've got some metcalfi coming in, so we'll have another uh, subspecies of carpet. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, yeah, and then hoping to get some black-headed pythons and potentially some other uh, species, Australian python species. Okay. And we work with a few lizards as well, some knobtail geckos. Uh, we work with uh, Amii and uh, Levis Levis and Wheeleri Synctus and Asper. Oh, okay. Uh, rough knobtails. And then a couple, uh, we work with uh, Tristus Tristus and uh, Pilbarensis monitors, mm-hmm. as well as some Kimberly Rock monitors. So the Glower Glau- tie. Right, okay. No. Yeah. um... Knowing what we do about the industry, where did you come up with all these animals? Because Australia's been, you know, closed for so long. Is it mostly from Europe that you picked these up, or? Yeah, that's that's kind of where a lot a lot of these uh, new projects pop up are in Europe, and um, you know that's kind of a touchy subject to some extent. But oh, sure. I think a lot of the things that um, were in you know are in Europe or in the United States or in Asia kind of find their way it's you know kind of a global industry these days so they find their way um, into the, the market from either long-standing populations or through other means right right uh, gotcha well recently this the probably a, a nice example of uh, is the rough scale python where you know it's probably the rarest python in the world Yeah, it wasn't even discovered until just recently yeah and and it just made its way into herpetoculture this last year, really? um, through yeah, uh, through Cameron uh, at uh, Bushmaster Reptiles, he okay. was able to acquire some from a zoo, uh, private zoo in Switzerland, I believe. So they are completely legal. They have paperwork, um, wow. no risk of having them, you know, confiscated. Right, so, snatched up. Right. Okay. So that that occurs as well. So zoos are, are a, a source of legal, you know, animals that are, are able to make their way into herpetoculture as well. Right, right. Now, how many animals do you currently house between you, between you guys? Ah, oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I guess it varies day to day as we ship some off. Right, right. We just got our first clutch of python eggs uh, Saturday, so. Oh, really? What type of uh, python? Uh, this is from uh, some Cape York spotted pythons. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. That's a nice clutch to have on the ground. Uh, yeah. I got a, another Cape York female right on her heels, getting ready to lay as well. So, oh, nice. um, maybe a couple hundred. Couple somewhere. hundred. Okay. Yeah. So we're—I mean—we're not the the largest breeders in the world, and that's kind 
kind of by design. Um, oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, we we are uh, all all of us are looking to get um, you know full time jobs that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. right now I've, I'm a, a research scientist. I got my PhD in 2005, and so I've been doing some uh, antiviral studies for the last uh, 12 years now, or sorry, six, seven years, mm-hmm. and uh, have enjoyed that thoroughly. So um, nice. I, I keep the uh, reptiles as a part-time um, hobby business. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you know, I, it doesn't turn into as much work as maybe some of these giant collections might. And right. I can always find enjoyment and uh, not have to have pressure to sell animals to feed my family. It can be more of a, an, you know, an extra thing where, um, you know, it doesn't really matter if I sell an animal. It's not going to mean I can't pay my bills. So it stays more of an enjoyment. And that's by design, I right, think. It. Right, right. But, uh, you know, I always wonder how it would have been to walk down that other path of doing it full time. And I, I, I feel that my passion could have probably fueled that and made it work but i don't know how great of a salesman i am and so <laughs> that's that's key if you're you know big time in this industry to get yourself marketable and get yourself a name out there and things like that so i figured i'd just keep it kind of small time and and keep it as a an enjoyable hobby right right now what is in your opinion what are some of the biggest risks for someone getting involved in this industry as far as a, uh, from a breeding perspective that's, that's a good question because I think a lot of people dive in with the wrong expectation. I know I did to some extent. I mean, I remember one project, um, you know, I saw dollar signs. You know, right. I thought, okay, you put in this much, it's, it's almost like a pyramid scheme. You put in enough money <laughs> and you get all this money out, you know, exactly. buy now, quickly get the animals and, and you'll be rich before you know it. And and I think that, that happens all too often where people see, oh, this animal costs $2,000. If I buy it, I, I'll make twenty thousand dollars you know off of right. one clutch and that kind of thing and so you know that's that's uh one thing is to i, I think a, a, a nice way to get into the hobby and well there's there's two ways you can do it i guess there's the not so risky way where you build up your collection slowly you know you get a pair of animals you do well with them they have babies and they're not the most expensive animals on the earth um you breed those sell sell the babies you know, start getting a reputation for good customer service, for quality animals. And then, uh, you know, once you sell those babies, you buy another project and kind of move up as you have the money that is from your animals. So you're never necessarily putting out your personal funds to Mm -hmm. to fund the project. Um, Another way, and, and, you know, we've done several projects that way where we could completely afford the animals. It wasn't a big risk and uh, bought them with, make money and you know and uh, right. they panned out in the long run and, and generally if you can take good care of them you'll you'll make your money back i think the prices fall slowly enough that uh you can generally make back what you put into it with when you breed the first season and generally after that you may it may take you two seasons to get your money back but mm-hmm. after that it's pretty much uh you know gravy after that and right. uh so but We've also done it the way where we, you know, put it on the credit card and bought expensive animals that we didn't have the money for and put it on credit and uh, produced them and were able to pay off the, the credit card, you know, after a couple of years oh, um, sure. of producing them that way. So, you know, I've seen some people that 
put up lots of money for these things, and I either they're really rich or they, <laughs> you know, have put put animals on credit. I know I know a couple of the big breeders got their start by you know making that risk, putting right. putting a lot of money up or or invest finding investors or finding lines of credit to be able to afford some of these expensive animals, and it mm-hmm. pan, panned out, and they're doing very well now. So. It's a it's a tricky thing, and it's a fickle market. I mean, right. somebody posts a low price on king snake, and that's the new market price, and everybody expects that price. And it's really hard to keep your prices high after you know at a level you expect they should sell at after somebody's seen it for a low price on king snake. So you know, it's just the risk is high if you're gonna be involved in living creatures. I mean, they could die at any time. You know, right. you know they could just drop dead for no reason almost. So, um, exactly. now, just make sure as, that... Um, the litigation and uh, the new laws and stuff coming out, too, that also has an effect on the industry. Now, um, how, how does the, how does the uh, Python litigation affect you personally, if at all? No, that's... Uh, I don't work with any of the large species, so I think directly it won't affect what we breed but it, it always seems to follow that when they take out one they're going to go for the next one and keep right. going and going it doesn't seem like they're going to stop until nobody can keep any reptiles in captivity i mean uh, amphibian species and things like that so i think they start first with the things that are the scariest and then they keep moving don't have any rights anymore at all so i'm i you know i'm active part of fighting against these legislations, writing letters, mm-hmm. doing my part, donating to USARC or um, whichever other organization is uh, you know, helping us in the battle to defeat such legislation. But it's very important that we you know, act as a community and take that uh, work together to bring those down because mm-hmm. they're not just going to start with, they're not just going to stop with the big five or whatever other species are on the chopping block. Right, right. What are some of the major uh, changes that you've seen personally in the industry since you started? Well, um, it seems like initially, like I, you know, back in the day, before well, before the internet, I think that was kind of before internet and after internet are the big uh, changes that I have seen. And before the internet, it seems like it was really hard to get information on the species. The species mm-hmm. were rarely bred, and um, or if they were, you know, you had to had to know somebody almost that was breeding them. Or I guess if you went to the reptile shows, you met people that um, bred a different species and you could get on their mailing lists or whatnot. Mm-hmm. But ever since the Internet, that expansion um, of knowledge of species has grown like wildfire. It seems like just anybody can, can learn a lot of things on the Internet. And mm-hmm. with that, I think, with that instant knowledge on the, on the net comes a bunch of instant experts that think just because they've read a hairstyle <laughs> online, they're the new experts on how to keep these things. And yeah, granted, yeah, they, may, they may be okay, and they may have some knowledge to be able to be successful, and that's a good thing. But, uh, yeah, you need to watch and be careful who you're getting your information from. But another big change, I think, is the the dollar signs in people's eyes and reptiles, um, you know, breeding reptiles, <laughs> you know, especially something like a ball python or something. Anybody can breed a ball python. It's not a difficult thing, and, you know, you, you may be able to get some funding up for some expensive projects that start you off in the right direction, but mm-hmm. really, you know, if you can breed some uh, 
Bowen's pythons, you might have a little more bragging rights or a little more <laughs> uh, opportunity to gain an ego. But right, um, some of the more difficult stuff that you know somebody else hasn't been doing for you know the past twenty years or what have you. Exactly, but yeah. I, I guess it's you know it's all about marketing and, and making yourself appear to be the guy, and so maybe right. that's by design, and um, that can be useful to them and their business. So it's hard to fault uh, anybody for doing anything, <laughs> to, except perhaps uh, the people who do things unethically. That's a little scary. But. Yeah, yeah, very definitely. So as far as the uh, the future of the industry and the future of Australian addiction, uh, what do you guys see happening? Well, I, I think uh, I, I'm going forward with faith, I guess. You okay. know, you just keep doing it and, and hope that you can fight these legislations to be able to do what we what we enjoy doing and continue to keep the species that we're able to keep and uh, hope that the, these other uh, interests don't win out and mm-hmm. don't result in the ban of the species we want to keep. But, right. Um, I, I think... They'll have a tough time. I think we're we're pretty well banded together. These organizations like USART and um, they've helped out and, and made us aware of the legislation that are coming down the pipeline, so that we can step in and intervene. Um, I heard recently just a, a town about an hour south of here uh, banned all pythons um, in in the town, so you can't keep any of the pythons in the town. So, yeah, you know, I didn't even know that was a, a possibility. They could just sweet ban and <laughs> wow. do that kind of thing. So it's a little bit scary that it's nice that we have kind of watchdog organizations that will alert us to these things and mm-hmm. let us know when those kind of things are, are uh, threatening. Now, something um, in regards to the python species that you're bringing, the carpet pythons, and maybe it's just a rumor, but I've got to ask, have you heard anything about the blue jungle carpet pythons? Blue jungle carpet. Yeah, is this a myth, a rumor? Uh, I've heard it mentioned a couple of times, but I've never actually seen one. So I'm wondering, is this just somebody that's trying to do something with, you know, getting a blue jungle carpet? Or well, I, the, the only thing I can think of is if they're talking about the inland carpet pythons, which are have kind of a bluish tint to them. They oh, have okay. kind of a, a bluish color to them. The blue jungle car. I don't know that I've heard anything about blue jungles yet. I've okay. heard of uh, red jungles and black and white jungles that are locality specific type animals, but oh really? I've heard okay. Of a blue one up to this point. Huh. Okay. <laughs> the Astran, I guess. Yeah, I've just I've seen a couple of people mention them, and that's why I was asking. As far as uh, shows and things go, uh, when are you guys going to be at the next show, or what is the uh, next show for you guys? I should say. The show that we, we have done every year for the past several years has been the uh, NARBC show in Anaheim. Okay. That's the, probably the biggest show we do. Um, we added a few new shows this last year, but a lot of them didn't pay off as much. So, okay. it, I mean, the economy was a little down. So, sure. um, and where we both, you know, uh, the three of us have jobs and are <laughs> right. either going to school, it's hard to make too many shows. Mm-hmm. I'd like to do a few more shows, but um, it's tricky. But we always do the Anaheim show, and we do the the Salt Lake show in Utah. Okay. Um, also, last we'll we'll be doing a few Arizona shows since uh, 
We brought on Steve Sharp. He's a business partner down in Arizona, so he's right there by those shows, so he'll be able to set up kind of in his hometown to vend there, and we'll just travel down and bring some animals with us. So. Oh, very nice. Yeah. Okay. And uh, just for our listeners, uh, your guys' website, um, just so I don't mess it up, what it, it's Australian Addiction? AustralianAddiction.com. Yeah. Okay. All in word. Yep. Okay, very good. Now, uh, before we let you go here, Justin, uh, one question we always ask all of our uh, guests on the Reptile Living Room. If money was no object and, you know, you had everything you could possibly want or need as far as time and, you know, resources, what would be the ultimate reptile species that you would keep? <laughs> That's a that's a fun question to think about. I, exactly. <laughs> I've got a big list of things that I'd like to keep in there. No limit, but I think if I could only choose one, it would probably be the Parenti, assuming I could get them. But the Parenti monitor, really? okay. they're just a cool species. I mean, they require a lot of a lot of room and a lot of uh, food and you know money to care for them. But mm-hmm. that would be that would be one on my list. I think. Nice. The number one spot. Very cool. <laughs> All right. So uh, just to, uh, for our listeners, once again, you can always find Justin every year at the uh, NARBC show. Uh, well, maybe not Justin personally because he does travel a lot. Uh, but you can always find somebody from Australian Addiction at the NARBC show in Anaheim. And then uh, check out the website for any future updates for other shows that they may be going to. And once again, it's AustralianAddiction.com. Uh, and Justin, thanks for being on the show. Oh, uh, thanks for having me. And uh, any any uh, closing thoughts you'd like to uh, throw out there to uh, some of our listeners, as far as uh, pythons or any of the Australian species that uh, you might see coming around? Well, I think there's a, there's some some uh, bad press floating around there on the aggressive nature of carpet pythons, but I I think uh, you know as, as hatchlings or small juveniles, they are somewhat feisty and snappy oh, sure. but as they as they mature uh they're very tractable very handleable um very interesting species they're very enjoyable to work with and i encourage everybody to look into them uh it's hard to find a more beautiful snake than a black and yellow jungle carpet python and um they're just a fascinating and an amazing species to work with uh i encourage everybody to check them out very true, very true. I've actually had some myself, and yeah, like you said, when they're babies and just hatched out, you know, and it makes sense, you know, they're they're very small. Anything oh, yeah. larger than them, you know, is obviously a predator, you know, <laughs> so of course yeah. they're going to bite and, you know, get, you know, <laughs> nasty with you, but yeah. once, you know, you get them past that, they're they're an awesome snake. I've had, I've had some before, and they're just, yeah. And, and also uh, some of the different subspecies as well. The, the Centralian carpets, actually they're full species, Morelia bretoli, but the bretoli and the metcalfi mm-hmm. um, are even pretty calm as, as hatchlings as well. And as adults, oh. I mean, I've heard reports of people picking up wild uh, inland carpets and wow. uh, no aggression at all. I mean, as calm as can be, my Centralian pythons, are, are puppy dogs. I mean, I don't worry about getting bit by them at all. Maybe right. if I've got a rat in my hand and you know, I'm trying to feed by my hand, that right. might be a little bit risky. But you know, other that's than that, the only time I ever got uh, tagged by one of my carpets was yep. I I was, you know, like you just said, 
feeding mice, and I dropped one too many in the enclosure, and I, you know, she was all the way on the other side, so I thought for sure I could be fast enough to grab that rat. Yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> and that was the only, and, one, and she only tagged me, you know, barely. It wasn't even really, you know, it wasn't even really a full bite. It's like she realized, you know, that, okay, that was the handler, not the food. Let go. Yeah. And, and it was, yeah. yeah. But they, oh, yeah. They are awesome snakes. They're great to work with. Uh, I'll always have uh, some carpet python or another in my collection. Right, right. Too much. Now, Hopefully any, I'll... Uh, any specific species that you're working with uh, that you're going to have at the next show? Um, we've got some a really fun project. I, I'm not sure how many people are aware of the zebra jungle carpet python project. This is a co-dominant morph of the jungle carpet. It's okay. a pure pure jungle carpet morph, and uh, the zebra is, is really kind of a fine banded, um, really kind of crazy patterned mutation. So it's a, a, a pattern mutation of the jungle carpet python, and uh, they're they're really nice to look at. But um, what's even more interesting, I guess, is uh, the super form of the zebra is a patternless yellow carpet python. And so um, really? there's only a few in the world up to this point, and uh, I think by only two people. We're trying for some supers this year. Um, I have a good feeling about next year with some really amazing supers, so um, that's that's coming down the pipeline. But zebra jungle carpets are, are a really fun project. Um, oh. So check those out if you see us at the show. Definitely will do that. And uh, Justin, thanks again. And once again, it's uh, AustralianAddiction.com. Do check them out. Got some great stuff on there, guys. And uh, look forward to seeing you at the Anaheim show again. Sounds great. All right. And there you have it. That was Justin Julander of Australian Addictions. Look for him out at the next show. Definitely talk to him. Talk to him about his uh, current species he's working with and whatnot. As always, folks, please, please, please leave a comment. Leave some messages on either iTunes or the websites, reptilelivingroom.com. Of course, we're associated with reptileapartment.com, as well as the new magazine that's out, perphousemag.com. And once again, of course, we are always, always brought to you by the wonderful Marsha McGinnis and her captive care breeding facility, Golden Gate Geckos, for the finest in the furus, uh, colionics, uh, African fat tails, because I can never say the uh, first name properly. We'll just call them African fat tails. And uh, leopard geckos, check out Marsha up at Golden Gate Geckos. Once again, you're not going to find a better uh, person to talk to about the care and, uh, and captivity of the species. So give her a tumble. Check her out, goldengategeckos.com. Leave us some comments on the blogs. Look forward to seeing you next week.